and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 126. I'm Kip Clark, and joining me in the studio today, we have another guest, Connor Taswell. Hello there. And so today, we're going to be talking about being raised in a biracial family, and we've touched on race at various points throughout the show, but being white, I obviously have a very limited and very biased perspective on race in the case of America, looking at black and white relations, although race is, of course, a very complex topic that includes various races from around the world. But as a first question to you, I approached you because I wanted to talk about this, and I'm really curious to know what went through your head and, at the risk of sounding somewhat backwards, why you agreed to talk about this with me. I mean, I had a, mostly through like high school, very interesting experience being biracial. You know, I went to a mostly just like white high school. I think including me, there were like seven black students there and pretty much every single one of my friends, my close friends, all of my close friends were white, except for maybe like a couple Asian students. So when I came to Kenyon, the school that Kip and I both went to, it's in the middle of nowhere in Ohio. It felt diverse and it's a mostly white school, you know, upper class white students. So, you know, when you approached me, the first thing that kind of went through my head is just kind of like how high school went. And, you know, race was a big thing for me in high school. And it really didn't become a thing until people started to kind of recognize that when we got to that age. Yeah. And I just kind of wanted to share my story. Which I thoroughly appreciate. And to maybe clarify an aspect of my question, why you felt comfortable talking about it. Because, of course, there are countless instances of racial conflict in our country. And, of course, the sensitivity surrounding race. I could very easily imagine and would very much respect you had you said, Kip, I don't want to discuss that with you. So I'm curious to know why it's something that you are willing to discuss. Well, I think it's because it's something that really needs to be discussed. It's something that people need to know about more, you know, and it's not something that I have any PTSD about or that I'm ashamed to talk about. So, you know, if someone wants to talk to me about it, I'm more than happy to express my views on the subject. Which I appreciate. And I will probably say at numerous points throughout the conversation, one thing that I find curious because white people don't need to be, and I would contend are not aware of their race because societally there isn't that necessity. I'd love to know when you were first aware that you could be classified as black. And I say that because being biracial, I think it's a difficult category to fit into. And I'd really like to know if you can recall any first memories. I don't really have any first memories. I think because my parents kind of showed me very quickly, were like, you're an African-American person, you're a biracial person. And they wanted me to have that knowledge and to take pride in the fact that I was a biracial person. And I think even like when I was in elementary school, I'd be like, I'm half black, you know, like a little joyful little kid. One interesting thing for me, though, is that since my family is so far away, you know, my grandparents, my, my dad's side, who's black, are in North Carolina. And the rest of my family from that side is either in North Carolina or New York. And my mom's side of the family, who's white and like completely Irish, they're all in Philadelphia and New Jersey. So I didn't grow up around my family to kind of take in that aspect of my life. You know, I didn't grow up around like my black family or my Irish family. It was just me, my mom, my dad. And then when I was 11, my sister. And looking at your nuclear family, in recent years, the media has started to cover more issues and incidences like those regarding Trayvon Martin, Tamir Rice, Michael Brown and Ferguson, which to me was a powder keg of sorts that started more media coverage. 
I've had conversations with my family, but they could not have taken the perspective of what it means for us as a white family, because largely and unfortunately, things don't change, at least in the immediate sense. I'd really love to know what conversations in your family had been like, perhaps around the dinner table, or because I'm presuming that conversations like that happened if those topics weren't discussed as readily after they came to light. So, you know, there was outrage immediately. Everybody in my family was incredibly upset about it as more and more things happened. And then especially with Tamir Rice in Cleveland, that kind of hit home just because it's so close. And my dad grew up in Akron, which is, you know, about 30 minutes outside Cleveland. And interestingly enough, my mother was the one who had the most fear, I think. She was scared for me going out at night. I'd go out and she'd be like, okay, be very careful. Like cops, they will look for you. You're a person of color. And even, you know, when I'm driving, if I am driving somewhere, my mom's like, you know, like don't keep anything illegal in your car because cops are going to pull you over. And I'm like, luckily I have never been pulled over for DWB driving while black, but you know, my parents have had that happen countlessly. You know, it happens all the time. Have you ever been in the car when they've been pulled over? Well, I've been in the car when they've been pulled over, but like times when they were like speeding. Once when it was certainly like DWB, like my dad was doing the speed limit, doing fine. It was like me and my sister in the back of the car. I was like 12 years old when they pulled him over, asked him a bunch of questions. There was also a time when this was like a mall cop stopped him. Might have been a police officer stopped him in a mall and was like, hi, you match the description of this person who was like shoplifting or stole something. And, you know, it was just a bald black man. Looked nothing like my father, but white cops, he's bald black man. Yeah, and that's how the story goes. But another issue that happened after the Michael Brown shooting was when I was in North Carolina visiting my dad's side of the family. We were having dinner at my, I guess, second cousin's house and they're upper middle class, light skinned African-Americans. And I think they're pretty conservative. So they showed this video of this African-American man ranting about how Michael Brown was essentially a thug and, you know, shouldn't have been doing the things he was doing. But and yeah, sure, maybe he messed up, but he still got shot with his hands in the air unarmed. And they were talking about how like we as African-Americans need to be, you know, we just need to essentially to fit in. We need to act like the white people around us, essentially, which is what they kind of did. And they were arguing that essentially Michael Brown deserved to get shot. And my mother and I were at the dinner table and I was livid and I went off on them. You know, I had to go outside, smoke a cigarette and tell my my mom came out and was like, are you okay? And she's like, we got to go. We got to go home. Just because it was, you know, fellow African-American men putting down someone who had been killed brutally by the police, you know, and it was incredibly upsetting to hear that coming from my own family, from people I would assume would, I guess, share the same outrage that my family had living in Ohio as opposed to living in North Carolina. And in having your mother's family in Philadelphia and your father's in North Carolina, have you noticed certain disparities in the way they do or do not discuss race when visiting them? Actually, yeah, to an extent. Again, interestingly enough, my mother's side of the family tends to discuss it more, you know, and maybe it's because my grandfather was a racist before he met my father. And, you know, he ended up absolutely adoring my father after he and my mother got married. But they talk about race pretty regularly because it's, I think, more of a, an issue in a place like Philadelphia as opposed to a place like in the middle of nowhere in North Carolina. And my dad's side of the family, they all have bachelors or masters or doctorates. They all were very well educated, pretty well off growing up. And, you know, they had to struggle to get there. But I think they kind of have this strange skewed aspect of the American dream where it's like, well, all black people should be able to do this too. And it's like, they weren't as privileged as you. And they don't recognize that privilege. You know, like I grew up in an upper middle class family. I have massive amounts of privilege. I attended a prestigious liberal arts school. And if you can't recognize that privilege, then you're not helping anybody. You're not helping yourself. You're not helping your fellow African-Americans. And my mom grew up in absolute poverty. My grandfather worked three jobs. He was a firefighter. And they grew up in those circumstances. And I think they have a different view than my dad's side of the family who grew up pretty well off. 
And in previous conversations on the show, when we have discussed race, Caroline and I have often pointed out that race and class are usually very interlinked, that if you're black in America, you aren't doomed to be lower class, but people will presume that you are. And social environments, I would argue, often push you in very subtle and sinister ways to be in the lower class if you're black. So I'd be curious from your perspective, and this is, of course, subjective, Do you think that your mother's family might identify with or be more willing to discuss racial issues because of their relationship historically to poverty on some level? I think possibly. Another thing that my mother sometimes points out is like, they're all Irish. Michael Duffy, who's a student that goes to Kenyon with Kip and I, my grandma's side of the family is Duffy's from Ireland. I think my grandfather was second generation, maybe. And she talks about how Irish people were looked upon in a number of ways, the same way that people looked upon black people in America for a long time. And obviously that's not the same anymore. But I think they did have to struggle a lot to get where they are right now. That's not to say that my African-American side of the family didn't have to struggle just as hard, if not harder. And I think that's one of the issues is that when you're an African-American in the United States, you do have to work a lot harder. And they did. My dad's side of the family worked really, really hard. And I think that put them in the mindset that if they can do it, anybody else can. And because I'm perpetually fascinated by language and word use, when you say had to work a lot harder or as an African-American having to work a lot harder, working a lot harder to be more socially accepted, to stay financially or economically stable, what are you referring to when you use that phrase? Both of those both economically stable and socially accepted. To be socially accepted as someone who is educated, if they go out, they're not going to assume that they're an educated person. If I go out, people aren't going to assume I'm an educated person. And then again, to be financially stable, my grandfather was working as a chemist. He was making enough to survive. It wasn't poverty, but they weren't where they would be if they were white. With the kind of job that he had, if he were a white man, they would have been upper middle class at the least. He ended up dying of, I believe, liver cancer after an accident that happened at his chemical plant, and the chemical plant refused to give my family a compensation. I think the other thing is that he had a PhD and was working at a chemical plant. You know, you have a PhD in chemistry, you'd think you'd be a professor or be a research scientist, but he was working, I think, making like esters or ethers or something. And then my grandmother was a French teacher, and still, you know, you're not going to make that much money as a teacher anyway. And earlier you mentioned your maternal grandfather had issues with your father on the basis of race in marriages and families. You have previously disparate families coming together because their children presumably fell in love and are getting married. So I'd be really curious to know what you know of that and what you've been told about that relationship and that hostility or misunderstanding, if that's a better word. So my mom and my dad, and they started a relationship, and my mother informed my grandfather about the about this relationship, and he immediately disowned her, would not speak to her, would not give her any sort of financial aid if needed, nothing. So she would go to family events. All of her brothers and sisters supported this. It was fine. And even my grandmother didn't really have a problem with it. So she would go to family events for a brief period to say hi to people. And they were still living in Philadelphia at the same time. So my father and my mother and my grandparents were all in the same area. So she would go to Thanksgiving or whatever, say hi to her brothers and sisters, say hi to my grandmother. And then if her father was around, would leave. So then they moved to California, got married. They kind of eloped, you know, they got married in their backyard. Then my aunt got engaged. She was living in San Francisco at the time. And she knew that my father had a great singing voice. So she asked him to sing at their wedding. 
And I don't know if she planned this or not, but she had him sing The Wind Beneath My Wings, which was my grandfather's favorite song at the time. So at this wedding, my dad's there, my grandfather's there, my mom's there. He sings The Wind Beneath My Wings. You know, the wedding's great. They go to the reception and they're sitting at a table like away from my grandfather. And my dad gets up to go to the bathroom and he's like at the urinal and my grandfather comes in. He goes to the urinal right next to my father, starts telling him that he's been a racist fool and then starts crying at this urinal next to my dad while they're both peeing and and just like is like losing it. And my dad runs out white faced essentially to my mother and is just like, I don't know what to do. Like Ed is crying. He's freaking out. He's telling me he was a racist, like help. And then they got to know each other. And, you know, by the time I was born, he had asked my father to be buried next to him, which is like the greatest honor that an Irish man can give to somebody. Is there something we haven't touched on yet in this conversation that you'd like to examine further? Yeah, I mean, we talked mostly about kind of like my family history, but I kind of want to talk about my experience in Mount Vernon because, you know, this is really rural area in Ohio. Growing up here, it was difficult. You know, high school was hard because all my friends were white. There's actually an Earl Sweatshirt song. I can't remember what the name of it is, but he says at one point, he's too black for the white kids, too white for the black. And that kind of resounded with me when I was in high school. Some of my friends would say I'm like an Oreo because I'm black on the outside, white on the inside. They would be like, well, you're not really black, but I would also be the black kid in the conversation, you know, be like, well, he's the black one. Ask him or something like that. I was a very angry teenager in a lot of ways because of that. There were also some like pretty hardcore racists at my high school. When you talk about having that anger and that frustration, now that you've had years distance from your adolescence, how might you articulate the source of that anger or maybe the target of that anger and frustration that you felt? I feel like it would be difficult for me to pinpoint a source of the anger just because I was angry about a lot of things. I was very into like politics and whatnot when I was younger, and I still am, but not as I was a self-proclaimed anarchist in high school. But, you know, I think that the target of my anger was probably directed towards just kind of this establishment that I'd grown up in, this conservative kind of worldview that was being pushed upon me by the school administration, my peers. It was frustrating. I had a teacher in middle school who tried to lead an entire class discussion about how abortion was wrong and how it was evil. And this was when I was 11 years old. Like these were 11 year old, 12 year old kids that she was trying to force this opinion on. That kind of thing was really problematic in our school and it was was let to happen. There was a pretty big national case actually with John Freshwater, who was a teacher who refused to teach evolution in his classrooms, violates his contract. He has to teach the curriculum. And when I was in science class, I think it was eighth grade, he came into our class for a few days and tried to disprove evolution. But by that, he mostly just made up a bunch of propaganda, claimed that like social Darwinism and evolution were the same thing. He compared like people who believe in evolution to Nazis. And then my teacher had to go to his class just to teach the curriculum and talk about evolution. And then he also like burned a cross on some kid's arm or something and everything blew up. Which is a really interesting anecdote to bring up. And with the mention of science, I'd really like to talk to you about phenotype because you're genotypically biracial. But at least in my perspective, you have relatively light skin. And I don't know that most people upon meeting you or seeing you out in public would say, well, there's a black individual. Has your experience reflected that or have most people who haven't met you before deduced your racial heritage or come to you with certain preconceptions about your race? Yeah. Sixth grade, 11 years old, orchestra class. This girl, Jamie Barton, walks up to me and I reference the fact that I'm African-American. She says, oh, I thought you were Mexican. That happens regularly. With my ex-girlfriend, after I first met her stepmother and I left, you know, I went home. She said to her, where is he from? And my ex-girlfriend said, Gambier, Ohio? Like, no, where is he from? I don't know what you mean. Is he, I mean, is he like Brazilian or something? 
And she was just like, no, he's, he's, he's half black. And she was like, oh. That's usually the question I get is, where are you from? Which is a really annoying question to have to deal with. And yeah, I am very light-skinned. And sometimes I can just pass off as like slightly tan white person. And I honestly think that has helped me in my life. You know, I don't get the driving while black thing. If you're passing by me in a car, you're not going to tell like, hey, there's a black guy, but I pull him over. But I also get the weird thing that I've gotten recently a lot is I look like Lenny Kravitz. And so I guess people think that I'm half Jewish and half black or something. Also, you know, again, back to the high school thing with my, my friends just being kind of prejudiced in that way, just being like, well, you're not really black. It's like, well, I really identify with my African-American heritage. Well, you're not really black. And it kind of did push me to do more research into my heritage, into what it means to be a black man in America. I don't know where in Africa my family would have come from, obviously. I know we came from Tazewell, Virginia as slaves. I know that much. My dad's done some research into the fact that his father's side of the family comes from also from South Carolina and the Gullah culture. It has benefited me in a lot of ways. Even in school, you know, I was able to, like college applications, claim that I was just African-American. I didn't have to put biracial or anything on it. And, you know, I was advised by former Kenyan students to do the same thing. And I ended up getting a scholarship for students of color and going to school for free, which was amazing. So I, that benefited me a lot. I don't really feel bad for doing that. And I don't think that you should. I respect and admire the fact that you're proud of your heritage. I would say, ideally, that you should be encouraged to be proud of your heritage regardless of your race. But I think especially given the nature of being black in America, it absolutely makes sense. And I've also noticed, especially in recent years in college, how commonplace appropriation is. And we've talked about it briefly in other episodes, but for those who don't know or are not familiar with that term, the idea of taking aspects of another culture and using them to your own benefit, even though you don't have any cultural stake or connected heritage. And so you are picking and choosing elements from other people's lives and ways of living that could benefit you in some way. And I'd be really curious to know if you think other people, perhaps the high school students you mentioned, might accuse you of that because phenotypically they don't perceive you as black, but culturally they recognize that you are acting in ways that reflect your heritage. And therefore there's a discontinuity in their mind in trying to link you to black identity. Yeah, I think that that was something that was an issue. I don't think they had the language to use cultural appropriation as it. I don't even think that they were saying it in a way that we would say it, as in like, you shouldn't do that because you don't have any stake in their culture. They would be like, why are you doing that? Because you're not really black. So like if I was listening to like rap music or talking in a specific way, dressing in a specific way, you know, I had a dashiki that I wore in high school and people would be like, what the, like, what is that? Even when I was, when I was in California for a couple months, I remember I was wearing my dashiki and I took it off to change for some reason. And I went to go get dinner and this woman was walking down the street and she dropped a paper or something. It flew away and she was an African-American woman. And I ran over and grabbed it for her and I picked it up and I looked up and I saw that she was wearing the exact same dashiki that I own. And I was like, oh, like I have the same dashiki. Like that's, that's, that's awesome. And she just kind of gave me this quizzical look like, why do you have a dashiki? Like you shouldn't own that. So I think it is something that happens as someone with like very fair skin for a black man. And before we close the episode, what are some things you would like the audience to think about and to sincerely consider after listening to our discussion? Don't be the kind of person who says, I'm blind to race. Race is important. And, you know, race is certainly an invented part of human culture, but that doesn't make it any less real in our society right now. When you talk to somebody, you know, if you're comfortable enough asking for their pronouns, then you should be comfortable enough being like, well, how do you identify racially? Because that is an important thing to somebody. And talk to your friends, ask about their experiences, ask about how they 
lived their lives and how their lives have been better or harder or anything. So you have that knowledge and you can gain a sort of empathy for other people and use that to assist other people, assist your family and friends and complete strangers and try to make this world a better place. I completely agree. And while I know I can't speak from the black perspective, I think in asking any of those questions, which attempt to cross boundaries of difference or misunderstanding, do so as best you can without presumption and with an open mind so that you can earnestly engage with what people are telling you about their culture and their identity, because you have to give them the chance not only to speak, but to listen and learn from what they have to say. And Connor, One, I'd like to thank you for coming on, but two, I'd like to thank you for being very candid and vulnerable about a topic like this. Of course. Thank you for having me, Kit. The other thing I would say is don't be afraid to be wrong when you're talking about these things because everybody makes mistakes. I'm sure my grandfather made some incredibly racist comments in front of my father before he really got to know him, but at least you're trying to better yourself as a person, and that's really important. Absolutely. But as always, we want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. So if you do have comments, feedback, thoughts, or input of any kind, please reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you and we want you to join the conversation. You can find us on Twitter or on Facebook, where if you like our page, you'll receive weekly updates when we post new episodes. You can also email us via strideandsaunter at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to and reviewing the show as well as sharing it with someone you think might also enjoy and get something out of it. And as always, we thank you very much for listening. And from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark signing off.